0: Pacifica, this is Democracy Now.
1: The notion of failed state is not uh, precisely defined, but uh, the general characteristics of failed states are well understood. Uh, these are states that are either uh, unwilling or unable to protect their citizens from violence, uh, states that are what are sometimes called outlaw states, uh, disregard contempt for uh, international law and norms. Uh, They may have democratic forms, uh, but they are uh, pretty much deprived of substance.
0: Today, an hour with Noam Chomsky, the world-renowned linguist, political analyst, one of the foremost critics of U.S. foreign policy. He's written a new book. It's called Failed States, the Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Hours after Jill Carroll was released from a nearly three-month kidnapping, the U.S. freelance reporter gave an interview with Iraqi television in which she addressed her ordeal. I was kidnapped January 7th. Uh, I don't know why. Really, I don't know why. That's a question for the Mujahideen.
2: Well,
3: uh, how did they... Deal
0: with you. They were others. very good treatment. Like I didn't my, treat you. Yes. Very good treatment. Very good treatment. I was kept in a very good, small, safe place—a safe room, nice furniture. They gave me clothing, plenty of food. I was allowed to take showers, go to the bathroom when I wanted. Very good. It never hit me. Never even threatened to hit me. You didn't yeah. feel that you were in uh, detention at all. Well, I felt. I felt I was not free. Um, you know, I, it, was an, it, uh, it was difficult because I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what would happen to me. Jill Carroll is a freelance reporter working for the Christian Science Monitor in Iraq. She was seized in January outside the offices of a prominent Sunni politician in Baghdad. On Thursday, friends, family, and colleagues celebrated her release. This is Jill Carroll's father, Jim Carroll, speaking outside his home in North Carolina.
4: Obviously, the the question, how do you feel, is excellent. Uh, We've had an arduous three months. It's been very, very difficult. Um, The family and all of the friends. um, And obviously, all the people around the world. The media coverage for Jill has been amazing. couldn't believe it. And uh, we certainly appreciate that, the the thoughts and the prayers of people from around the world, um, including many people in Iraq who are trying to help her. We certainly want to say a special thank you to the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, The people in that paper did an an incredible job, devoted themselves for three months to getting Jill released. Uh, They worked with doing investigative reporting in Baghdad. They worked on setting up the uh, media statements, the video statements we made. They created uh, public service announcements uh, in Baghdad uh, to keep her face alive and her image there so that people understood that. Uh, what her condition was. Um, we got the call this morning. I got the call uh, a little before 6. Jill called me directly. And it was a, quite a wake-up call, to say the least. And uh, she was she's doing well. Uh, I was glad to see her on TV this morning. Um, she's uh, apparently in good health and uh, mentally strong. And we're all very pleased about that.
0: Joe Carroll's father, Jim. Meanwhile, Joe Carroll's already coming under attack for saying she was treated well by her captors. Writing for the National Review, John Puthoritz wrote, quote, It's wonderful that she's free, but after watching someone who is a hostage for three months say on television she was well-treated because she wasn't beaten or killed while being dressed in the garb of a modest Muslim woman rather than the non-Muslim woman she actually is, I expect there will be some Stockholm Syndrome talk in the next coming days. Those are the words of John Podharitz of the National Review. Carol's also being attacked for another video that was reportedly filmed while she was in captivity and posted on the web the day of her release. On the video, Jill Carroll is questioned by her captors. She reportedly says the insurgents are fighting a, quote, good fight. Carroll goes on to say, while the Americans are here, the occupying forces, you know, treating the people in a very, very bad way, so I can't be happy totally for my freedom because there are people still suffering in prisons in very difficult situations, she said. This news on Iran. The head of the U.N.'s nuclear watchdog agency said Thursday, Iran does not pose a nuclear threat and should not be subjected to sanctions. International Atomic Energy Agency head Mohamed ElBaradei said, We need to lower the pitch. The only durable solution is a negotiated solution, he said. The U.S. has threatened to impose sanctions if Iran fails to halt uranium enrichment activities. This news from the Occupied Territories. Israel has launched air attacks on Gaza after a suicide bombing killed four Israelis at a West Bank settlement. In France, the Constitutional Council has approved a controversial job that's drawn protests from millions of French citizens. The law makes it easier for employers to fire young workers. French President Jacques Chirac will have 24 hours to sign the measure into law or reject it under pressure from mass protests. In Jamaica Thursday, longtime member of parliament Portia Simpson-Miller became the first woman prime minister in Jamaica's history. Thousands of people turned out for the ceremony. On a visit to cement ties with the government of Indonesia, the British prime minister Tony Blair was met with several questions about the invasion and occupation of Iraq from students at an Islamic boarding school.
3: Do Your Excellency ever ask to your best friend, Mr. George W. Bush, the President of United States of America, to stop the war at Iraq? Because I heard that United Kingdom is a country that always help America to defeat Iraq, even they know that America is completely wrong. Thank you very much.
4: And whatever we thought about the original decision to remove Saddam, today, We should work with the United Nations and with other countries to make sure that Iraqi people get the same rights as we have in the UK and you have here. And that's what I want to see.
0: That was British Prime Minister Tony Blair answering a question from a young student at an Islamic school in Indonesia. In military news, the Pentagon has announced it will no longer allow soldiers to wear body armor other than what is given to them as part of their army service. Thousands of soldiers and their families have turned to purchasing extra armor amid complaints they have not been equipped with adequate protection. A secret Pentagon study last year concluded up to 80 percent of the Marines who've been killed in Iraq from upper body wounds could have survived had they been given extra body armor. The Pentagon says it's banning outside armor because of concerns soldiers are purchasing untested or insufficient gear. The city of New York has revealed undercover police officers have been routinely videotaping political demonstrations over the last two years. The city maintains the surveillance was legal under police authority expanded in 2003 to stop terrorist attacks. At a court hearing this week, one city attorney said the taping is necessary because rallies could become targets of terrorist attacks. But Jethro Eisenstein, a civil rights lawyer challenging the videotaping, said the policy is Orwellian and accused New York City of adopting a bullying view of the terrorism threat to block critical thinking. On Capitol Hill, the House blocked a measure proposed by House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi to investigate members of Congress linked to Republican lobbyist Jack Abramoff. The measure was tabled by a vote of 216 to 193. Abramoff was sentenced this week to 70 months in prison on fraud charges stemming from his purchase of a Florida casino. Abramoff is still awaiting sentencing on federal charges of bribing government officials and defrauding at least four Native American tribes out of tens of millions of dollars. And this news from New Orleans. The government has announced the reconstruction of New Orleans levees will cost around $10 billion, nearly three times more than originally forecast. The higher cost means several Gulf Coast areas may not be protected when hurricane season begins in two months. Louisiana Democratic Congress member Charlie Melanson criticized the revised cost, saying, quote, Now all of a sudden they say they made a $6 billion mistake. The news comes as the Bush administration announced Thursday it may take up to 25 years to repair New Orleans. In Massachusetts, a court has ruled that homosexual couples that are not state residents cannot be legally married if their home state wouldn't recognize their marriage. In making the ruling, the court upheld a century-old judgment originally intended to ban interracial marriage. And in Canada, a U.S. soldier who fled to avoid serving in Iraq is having his asylum case heard in front of an immigration board. Josh Key, who served in Iraq for eight months, said he decided to desert military service after witnessing several atrocities committed by the U.S. military. In an interview with the BBC, Key said, quote, the only people that were getting hurt was the innocent. That was innocent Iraqi people as well as innocent soldiers, he said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan González.
2: And welcome to all of our listeners and viewers. Well, the New York Times calls him arguably the most important intellectual alive. The Boston Globe has said, has referred to him as America's most useful citizen. He was recently voted the world's number one intellectual in a poll by Prospect and Foreign Policy magazine. We're talking about Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and one of the foremost critics of U.S. foreign policy. Professor Chomsky has just released a new book titled Failed States, The Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. It examines how the United States is beginning to resemble a failed state that cannot protect its citizens from violence and has a government that regards itself as beyond the reach of domestic or international law.
0: In the book, Professor Chomsky presents a series of solutions to help rescue the nation from turning into a failed state. They include accept the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and the World Court, Sign the Kyoto Protocols on Global Warming, let the United Nations take the lead in international crises, rely on diplomatic and economic measures rather than military ones in confronting terror, and sharply reduce military spending and sharply increase social spending. In this first broadcast interview upon publication of his book, Professor Noam Chomsky joins us today from Boston for the hour. We welcome you to Democracy Now!
1: Glad to be with you again.
0: It's good to have you with us. Uh, Failed states, what do you mean?
1: Well, over the years, there have been a series of uh, concepts developed to uh, justify uh, the use of force in international affairs for a long period. It was possible to justify it on the pretext, which usually turned out to have very little substance, uh, that the U.S. was defending itself against the communist menace. Uh, by the 1980s, that was wearing pretty thin. The Reagan administration concocted a new category, a terrorist states. Uh, they declared a war on terror as soon as they entered office in the early 80s, 1981. Uh, defend, we have to defend ourselves from the plague of the modern age, uh, return to barbarism, uh, the evil scourge of terrorism, and so on, particularly state-directed international terrorism. Uh, A few years later, uh, this is Clinton. Uh, Clinton devised the concept of rogue states. Uh, It's 1994. We had to defend ourselves from rogue states. Uh, Then later on came the failed states, uh, which either threaten our security, like Iraq, Uh, or uh, require our uh, intervention in order to save them, like uh, Haiti uh, often devastating them in the process. Uh, In each case, uh, the terms have been pretty hard to sustain uh, because it's been difficult to overlook the fact that uh, under any, uh, even the most uh, conservative uh, characterization of these notions, let's say U.S. law, uh, the United States uh, fits fairly well into the category as has often been recognized. Uh, by now, for example, the category, of, even in the Clinton years, uh, leading scholars, uh, Samuel Huntington and others, uh, observed that uh, in the major journals, Foreign Affairs, that in most of the world, the, much of the world, the United States is regarded as the leading rogue state and the greatest threat to their existence uh, by now. A couple of years later, Bush years, uh, same journals, leading specialists uh, don't even report international opinion. They just describe it as a fact that uh, the United States has become a leading rogue state. Uh, surely it's uh, a, a terrorist state under its own definition of international terrorism, uh, not only carrying out violent terrorist acts and supporting them, uh, but even radically violating the so-called Bush Doctrine, uh, that a state that harbors terrorists is a terrorist state. Undoubtedly, the U.S. Uh, harbors leading international terrorists, people described by the FBI and the Justice Department as leading terrorists like Orlando Bosch uh, now, Fasada uh, Curie not to speak of those who actually implement state terrorism. And I think the same is true of the category failed states. Uh, the U.S. increasingly uh, has uh, taken on the characteristics of uh, what we describe as failed states uh, in, the, uh, in the respects that Juan mentioned and also uh, another critical respect, uh, namely the what's sometimes called a democratic deficit. Uh, that is a substantial gap between uh, public policy and public opinion So those suggestions that you just read off, Amy, those are actually not mine. Those are pretty conservative suggestions. They are the opinion of the uh, majority of the American population, in fact, an overwhelming majority. Uh, And uh, to propose those suggestions is to simply uh, take democracy seriously. Uh, It's interesting that on these examples that you read and many others, uh, there is an enormous gap between public policy and public opinion. Uh, the proposals, uh, the general attitudes of the public, which are pretty well studied, uh, uh, are uh, uh, both political parties are on most of these issues, well to the right of the population.
2: Well, Professor Chomsky, in the early parts of the book, especially on the issue of the uh, of the one characteristic of a failed state, which is its, its increasing failure to protect its own citizens, you lay out a pretty comprehensive look at... What the, especially in the Bush years, the war on terrorism has meant in terms of protecting the American people. And uh, you lay out clearly, especially since the war, uh, in the invasion of Iraq, that terrorist, major terrorist action and activity around the world has increased substantially. And, uh, and also you talk about the dangers of uh, possible nuclear, uh, uh, t- uh, nuclear weapons being used against the United States. Could you expand on that a little bit?
1: well it was uh, there has been a very serious threat of uh, nuclear war uh, it, in it's not unfortunately it's very not not much discussed among the public but if you look at the literature of uh, strategic analysts and so on they're extremely concerned and uh, they describe uh, uh, particularly bush administration aggressive militarism as carrying uh, an appreciable risk of ultimate doom to quote one uh, Apocalypse soon, quote Robert McNamara and many others, and there's good reasons for it I mean which are could explain, but and they explain uh, that's been expanded by the Bush administration consciously, not because they want nuclear war, but uh, just not a high priority so uh, uh, the rapid expansion of offensive u s military capacity uh, including the militarization of space, which is the u s s Pursued alone, the world has been trying very hard to block it. 95% of the expenditures now are from the US and they're expanding. Uh, all of these measures uh, uh, bring about a pre- completely predictable reaction on the part of the, uh, uh, of, of the likely targets. Uh, they don't uh, say, you know, thank you, uh, here are our throats, uh, please cut them. They uh, react in the ways that they can. Uh, for some it will mean uh, responding with the threat or maybe use of terror Uh, for others, more powerful ones it's going to mean uh, uh, sharply increasing their own offensive military capacity. So Russian military expenditures have sharply increased in response to Bush programs, Chinese uh, expansion of offensive military capacity is also beginning to increase for the same reasons. Uh, All of that uh, threatens uh, it raises the already severe threat of uh, even accident of just accidental nuclear war. These systems are on uh, computer-controlled uh, alert. Uh, we know that our own systems have uh, many errors, which are stopped by human intervention. Uh, their systems are far less secure. In the Russian case deteriorated. Uh, these uh, moves all sharply enhance the threat of nuclear war. That's serious nuclear war that I'm talking about. Uh, There's also the threat of uh, dirty bombs, uh, small nuclear explosions. Small means not so small, but in comparison with a a major attack which would pretty much uh, exterminate civilized life. Uh, The US uh, intelligence community regards the threat of uh, a dirty bomb, say in New York, in the next uh, decade as being probably greater than 50%, and those threats increase as the threat of terror increases. And uh, Bush administration policies have, again, consciously uh, been carried out in a way which they know is likely to increase the threat of terror. Uh, The most obvious example is the Iraq invasion Uh, that was undertaken with the anticipation that it would be very likely to increase the threat of terror and also nuclear proliferation. And, in fact, that's exactly what happened, according to the judgment of uh, uh, the CIA, uh, National Intelligence Council, uh, uh, foreign intelligence agencies, independent specialists. uh, uh, They all point out that, yes, as anticipated, it increased the threat of terror. In fact, it did so in ways uh, well beyond what was anticipated. Uh, to mention just one. Uh, We commonly uh, read that there were no weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq. Uh, Well, it's not totally accurate. Uh, There were means to develop weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and known to be in Iraq. Uh, They were under guard by UN inspectors who were dismantling them Uh, when Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and the rest uh, sent in their troops. Uh, they neglected to uh, instruct them to guard these sites. Uh, The UN inspectors were expelled, The sites were left unguarded. The inspectors continued their work by satellite and uh, reported that uh, over 100 sites had been looted, in fact systematically looted, not just somebody walking in, but careful looting. Uh, That included uh, dangerous biotoxins, uh, means to the high precision equipment, can be used to develop uh, nuclear weapons and missiles, uh, um, means to develop chemical weapons and so on. Uh, All of this has disappeared. Uh, One hates to imagine where it's disappeared to, uh, but it could end up in uh, New York. We're talking Uh,
0: to Noam Chomsky, and we're going to come back with him. His new book, just published, is called failed states, the abuse of power and the assault on democracy. We'll be back with Professor Chomsky in a minute.
3: Come, you masters of war Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs Here that hide behind the wall
0: Bob Dylan, Masters of War. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. We are broadcasting on over 400 radio and television stations around the country, on Pacifica Radio, NPR Radio, as well as low-power FM and community and college radio stations, on public access TV, on PBS stations, and on both TV satellite networks, on Dish Network, Channel 9415, Free Speech TV, 9410-Link TV, and also on Direct TV channel 375. And we are video and audio podcasting at Democracy Now! And there you can also find our transcripts. We're talking to Professor Noam Chomsky. Upon the release of his new book, Failed States, the Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy, Noam Chomsky, a professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'm Amy Goodman here with Juan Gonzalez. Juan?
2: Well, Professor Chomsky, uh, in your book, you also talk about how Iraq has become almost uh, an incubator, a university now for uh, advanced training for terrorists, uh, uh, who then are leaving uh, leaving the country there and going around the world, very much as what happened in the eighties in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and could you talk about that somewhat?
1: Yeah, actually, that's, uh, actually these are just quotes from. Uh, the CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies and analysts. Uh, Yes, they describe Iraq now as a a training ground for highly professionalized terrorists skilled in urban contact. Uh, They do compare it to Afghanistan, but say that it's much more serious because of the high level of training and skill. Uh, These are almost entirely Iraqis. There's a small number of uh, foreign fighters drawn to Iraq, uh, um, estimates are maybe five to ten percent, and uh, they are, uh, are, as in the case of Afghanistan, are expected to uh, uh, spread uh, throughout many parts of the world and to uh, carry out the kinds of terrorism that they're trained in, uh, as a reaction to clearly a reaction to the invasion. Iraq was, whatever you thought about it, it was free from connections to terror. Uh, prior to the invasion it's now a major terrorist center uh, it's not as president bush says that terrorists are uh, being uh, concentrated in iraq so that we can kill them uh, these are terrorists who had no uh, 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 no previous record of involvement in terrorism uh, the foreign fighters who have come in uh, mostly from saudi arabia uh, uh, have been investigated extensively by saudi and in, Israeli and U.S. intelligence, and what they conclude is that uh, they were mobilized by the Iraq War. Uh, they had no involvement in terrorist actions in the past, and undoubtedly, just as expected, the Iraq War has raised uh, uh, enormous uh, hostility throughout much of the world, and particularly the Muslim world. It was the most, probably, the most unpopular war in history, and uh, uh, even before it was fought. Uh, virtually no support for it anywhere, except the U- U.S. and Britain, and a couple other places. Uh, but uh, uh, since uh, and since the uh, the war itself was perhaps one of the most incredible military catastrophes in history, has caused utter disaster in Iraq, uh, and has uh, and uh, all of that has since simply intensified the uh, uh, the strong uh, opposition to the war of the kind that you heard from that Indonesian student a few moments ago. Uh, But that's widespread and that's a, uh, that's increases the reservoir of potential support for terrorists who regard themselves as a vanguard, uh, attempting to uh, uh, elicit support from others, bring others to join with them. And uh, the Bush administration is their leading ally in this Again, not in my words, uh, the words of uh, the leading U.S. specialists on uh, uh, terror. It's Michael Scheuer in this case. Uh, the, uh, and definitely that's happened. Uh, and it's not the only case. I mean, in case after case, the uh, Bush administration has simply downgraded the threat of terror. Uh, one example is the report of the 9-11 Commission. Uh, Here in the United States, the Bush administration didn't want the commission to be formed, tried to block it, but it was finally formed. bipartisan commission gave many recommendations. Other recommendations, to a large extent, were not carried out. The commission members, including the chair, were appalled by this, uh, set up their own private commission after their own uh, tenure was completed, and uh, continue to report that the measures are simply not being carried out. Uh, There are many other examples. Uh, One of the most striking is uh, uh, the Treasury Department has a branch, the Office of uh, Financial Assets Control, which is supposed to monitor suspicious funding transfers around the world. Uh, Well, that's a core element of the so-called war on terror. Uh, They've given the reports to Congress. It turns out that uh, uh, they have a few... uh, Uh, officials uh, devoted to uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, but about, I think it was six times that many uh, devoted to whether uh, there are any evasions of the uh, uh, totally illegal uh, U.S. embargo against Cuba. Uh, There was an instance of that just a few months ago when uh, the U.S. uh, uh, infuriated uh, even energy corporations by uh, ordering a Sheraton Hotel in Mexico City to cancel uh, a meeting uh, between uh, Cuban uh, oil specialists and U.S. oil companies, including some big ones, uh, seeking to explore the development of offshore Cuban oil resources. Uh, The government ordered, the Zofac ordered uh, uh, the hotel, the U.S. hotel, to expel the Cubans and terminate the meeting. Mexico wasn't terribly happy about this an extraordinary arrogance. But uh, it also reveals the hysterical fanaticism of the goal of strangling Cuba. And we know why. It's a free country. We have records going from way back and a rich source of them. Uh, go back to the Kennedy-Johnson administrations. Uh, they had to carry out a terrorist war against Cuba as they did and try to strangle Cuba economically. Uh, because of Cuba's, what they called Cuba's successful defiance of U.S. policies going back to the Monroe Doctrine. No Russians, but the Monroe Doctrine, 150 years back at that time. And the goal was, as was put very plainly by the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations, uh, to make the people of Cuba suffer. They are responsible for the fact that the government is in place. We therefore have to make them suffer and starve so that they'll throw out the government. That's a policy which is pretty consistent it's being applied right now in Palestine. Uh, it was applied under the Iraqi sanctions, applied in Chile and so on.
0: Noam it's Chomsky. Savage. We're talking to Noam Chomsky. His new book, uh, after he wrote Hegemony or Survival, one of scores of books, if not 100 books, that Professor Chomsky has written, his new one is called Failed States, The Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. You mentioned Israel, Palestine, and I wanted to... Um, ask you about this new study that's come out. A dean at Harvard University and a professor at the University of Chicago are coming under intense criticism for publishing an academic critique of the pro-Israel lobby in Washington. The paper charges that the United States has willingly set aside its own security and that of many of its allies in order to advance the interests of Israel. In addition, the study accuses the pro-Israel lobby, particularly AIPAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, of manipulating the U.S. media, policing academia, and silencing critics of Israel by labeling them as anti-Semitic. The study also examines the role played by the pro-Israel neoconservatives in the lead-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The authors are Stephen Walt, a dean at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago. They themselves are now being accused of anti-Semitism. In Washington, a Democratic Congressman, Elliot Engel of New York, described the professors as dishonest, so-called intellectuals, and anti-Semites. The Harvard professor Ruth Wiss called for the paper to be withdrawn. Harvard Law School professor Alan Dershowitz described the study as trash that could have been written by neo-Nazi David Duke. The New York Sun reported Harvard has received several calls from pro-Israel donors expressing concern about the paper, and Harvard has already taken steps to distance itself from the report. Last week, it removed the logo of the Kennedy School of Government from the paper and added a new disclaimer to the study. Uh, the report's 81 pages. It was originally published on Harvard's website, and an edited version appeared in the London Review of Books. The controversy comes less than a year after Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz attempted to block the publication of Norman Finkelstein's book, Beyond Chutzpah, on the misuse of antisemitism and the abuse of history. Now, this goes into a lot of issues. Um, the content of the study, what you think of it, the response to it, and also the whole critique... Um, in this country, what happens to those who criticize uh, the policies of the state of Israel? Noam Chomsky.
1: Uh, well, the answer to your last question is well described uh, in Norman Finkelstein's quite outstanding book and also in the uh, uh, record of uh, Dershowitz's attempts to prevent its publication. Uh, some of the documents were just published in the Journal of Palestine Studies. Uh, the uh, uh, Fegelstein 's book gives an extensive, detailed account, the best one we have of a uh, of, of a f- frightening record of uh, Israeli crimes and abuses. Uh, really he relies on the most uh, respectable and uh, um, sources, the major human rights organizations, Israeli human rights organizations, and others, and demonstrates uh, just conclusively that Alan Dershowitz 's defense of these Atrocities based on no evidence at all is uh, outrageous and grotesque. Uh, nevertheless, Finkelstein comes under a tremendous attack for being anti Semitic and so on. Uh, that's pretty normal. It goes back, I suppose, to uh, the distinguished uh, diplomat uh, Abba Eben, must be 30 years ago, uh, wrote uh, in an American Jewish journal that the task of uh, Uh, Zionists, he said, uh, is to show that uh, all, what he called uh, anti-Zionism, that means criticism of the policies of the state of Israel, is either anti-Semitism or Jewish self-hatred. Well, okay, that excludes all possible criticism by definition. As examples of uh, neurotic Jewish self-hatred, I should declare an interest. He mentioned two people. I was one, the other was Izzy Stone. Uh, once you uh, uh, release the torrent of abuse, you don't need arguments and evidence. You can just scream. And uh, uh, Professors Walton Mearsheimer deserve credit for uh, publishing a study which they knew was going to elicit the usual streams of abuse and hysteria from uh, supporters of Israeli crimes and violence. Uh, however, we should recognize that this is pretty uniform. Uh, try to say a sane and uncontroversial word about uh, any other uh, issue uh, dear to the hearts of uh, uh, the intellectual elite that they've turned into holy writ, uh, you get the same reaction. Uh, so, And there's no lobby. Uh, which does raise one of a few minor points that raises questions about the uh, validity of the Uh, of the critique. It's a serious, careful piece of work. deserves to be read. They deserve credit for writing it, Uh, but that still leaves open the question of how valid the the analysis is. Now, notice that there's a pretty subtle question involved. Uh, Everyone agrees on all sides that there are a number of factors that enter into determining U.S. foreign policy. One is strategic and economic interests of the major power centers within the United States, In the case of the Middle East, that means the energy corporations, uh, arms producers, uh, high-tech industry, financial institutions, and others. These are not marginal institutions, particularly in the Bush administration. So one question is, to what extent does policy reflect their interests? Another question is, to what extent is it influenced by domestic lobbies? under other factors, but just these two alone, yes, there you find them in most cases, and to try to sort out their influence is not so simple. Uh, in particular, it's not simple when their interests tend to coincide, and by and large, there's a high degree of conformity. If you look over the record, the what's called the national interest, meaning the special interests of those with, uh, uh, who, in whose hands power is concentrated, uh, the national interest, in that sense, tends to conform to the interests of the lobbies. So in those cases, it's pretty hard to disentangle them. Uh, if the thesis, of the, book, the thesis of the book is that the lobbies have overwhelming influence and the so-called national interest is harmed by what they do, if that were the case, it would be, a, uh, I would think, a, a very hopeful conclusion. It would mean that U.S. policy could easily be reversed. It would simply be necessary to explain to uh, the major centers of power, like the energy corporations, uh, high-tech industry, and arms producers, and so on. Just explain to them that they've uh, that their interests are being harmed by this uh, small lobby that screams anti-Semitism and funds congressmen, and so on. Uh, surely those institutions can utterly overwhelm the lobby and political influence in uh, finance and so on, so that ought to uh, reverse the policy. Well, it doesn't happen. Uh, And there are a number of reasons for it. Uh, For one thing, there's an underlying assumption that the uh, so-called national interest has been harmed by these policies. Well, you know, you really have to demonstrate that. So who's been harmed? Uh, Have the energy corporations been harmed by U.S. policy in the Middle East over the last 60 years? I mean, they're making... uh, Profits beyond the dream of avarice, as uh, the main government investigation of them uh, reported uh, even more today, that was a couple of years ago, has the, uh, uh, the U.S., the main concern of the U.S. has been to control uh, what, has, what the State Department 60 years ago called the stupendous source of strategic power in Middle East oil. Yeah, they've controlled it. Uh, there have been ba- in fact, uh, the invasion of Iraq was an attempt to intensify that control. The may not do it may have the opposite effect, but that 's a separate question. It was the intent clearly. Uh, there have been plenty of barriers. Uh, the major barrier is the one that is the usual one throughout the world independent nationalism uh, uh, it 's called radical nationalism, which was serious. It was uh, symbolized by uh, Nasser. Uh, but also uh, Qasem, in Iraq and others. Uh, well, uh, the U.S. did succeed in overcoming that barrier. How? Uh, Israel destroyed Nasser. Uh, that was a tremendous service to the United States and to U.S. power. That is to the energy corporations, to Saudi Arabia, the main centers of power here. Uh, and in fact, it's in that was 1967, and it was after that uh, victory that the US-Israeli uh, relations really solidified, became, uh, became what's called a strategic asset. It's also then that the lobby gained its force. It's also then, incidentally, that the educated classes, the intellectual uh, political class, uh, entered into an astonishing love affair with Israel after its demonstration of uh, tremendous uh, power against a third world enemy. Uh, And in fact, that's a very critical component of what's called the lobby. Uh, Walton Mearsheimer mentioned it, but I think it should be emphasized. And they are very influential. They determine the, uh, certainly influence the shaping of uh, news and information in journals, media, even scholarship and so on. My own feeling is they're probably the most influential part of the lobby. Uh, uh, By now, we sort of have to ask, what's the difference between the lobby and the power centers of the country. Uh, But uh, the the barriers were overcome. Israel's performed many other services to the United States, can't run through the record. It's also performed secondary services. So in the 1980s, particularly uh, Congress was imposing barriers to the Reagan administration's uh, uh, support for and carrying out uh, major terrorist atrocities in Central America. Israel helped evade congressional restrictions uh, by Carrying out training and so on itself, uh, the con- Congress blocked uh, U.S. trade with South Africa. Uh, Israel helped evade the embargo uh, to all the both the racist regimes of Southern Africa, and there have been many other cases. By now, Israel is virtually an offshore U.S. military base and high-tech center in the Middle East. No, Holmes, at,
0: we uh, have yes, to sorry. break four stations to identify themselves, but we'll come back. Professor Noam Chomsky is our guest for the hour. His latest book has just been published, and it's called Failed States, the Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. Back in 60 seconds. Jacobs Ladder, Chimba Wumba here on Democracy Now, DemocracyNow.org, The War and Peace Report. Our guest today is Professor Noam Chomsky. His new book is Failed States, The Abuse of Power, and the Assault on Democracy. Noam Chomsky, longtime professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, world-renowned linguist and a political analyst. I'm Amy Goodman here with Juan Gonzalez. Juan.
2: Professor Chomsky, in your book, you, you have a, a fascinating section where you talk about the historical basis of the Bush doctrine of preemptive war uh, and uh, and also its relationship to empire or to the building of a U.S. empire. And You go back, at, at, you mentioned a historian, John Lewis Gaddis, who the Bush administration loves because he's actually tried to find the uh, historical uh the historical rationalization for this, uh, for this use, going back to John Quincy Adams and, uh, as Secretary of State in the in- invasion by uh, General Andrew Jackson of Florida and the Seminole Wars, and how this actually is, is, a, is a, a record of the use of this idea uh, to continue the expansionist aims of the United States around the world.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting case, actually. John Lewis Gaddis is not only the favorite historian of the Reagan administration, but he's regarded as the dean of Cold War scholarship, the leading figure in the American Cold War scholarship, professor at Yale. And he wrote the one so far book-length investigation into the roots of the Bush doctrine, which he generally approves the usual qualifications about style and so on. Uh, He traces it back, as you say, to uh, his hero, the great grand strategist John Quincy Adams, uh, who wrote a series of famous uh, state papers back in 1818 in which he gave post-facto justification to Andrew Jackson's uh, invasion of Florida. Uh, It's rather interesting. Gad is a good historian. He knows the sources, cites all the right sources, uh, but he doesn't tell you what they say. Uh, so what I did in the book is just add what they say, what he omitted. Well, what they describe uh, is a shocking record of atrocities and crimes uh, carried out against what were called uh, runaway Negroes and lawless Indians, uh, devastated the Seminoles. There was another major Seminole war later, either exterminated them or drove them into the marshes. Completely unprovoked, there were fabricated pretexts, uh, Gaddis talks about uh, you know, the threat of England. There was no threat from England. England didn't do a thing. In fact, uh, even Adams didn't claim that. Uh, it, uh, but it was what Gaddis calls, uh, uh, an, it established what Gaddis calls the thesis that uh, the expansion is the best guarantee of security. So you want to be secure, just expand, conquer more, then you'll be secure. And he says, yes, that goes right through all American administrations. He's correct about that. And is the uh, centerpiece of the Bush doctrine. So he says the Bush doctrine isn't all that new. Yeah, expansion is the key to security. So we just expand and expand, and then we become more secure. Well, you know, I, he doesn't mention the obvious precedents that come to mind, so I'll leave them out, but you can think of them. Uh, uh, and there's some truth to that, except for what he ignores, and in fact denies namely the huge atrocities that are recorded uh, in the very sources, scholarly sources that he cites, which also point out that uh, Adams, uh, by giving this justification for uh, Jackson's war, uh, he was alone in the administration to do it, but he managed to convince the president, uh, he established uh, the doctrine of executive wars without congressional authorization in violation of the Constitution. Uh, Adams later recognized that and was sorry for it very sorry but uh, that established it and yes that's been uh, consistent ever since then executive wars without congressional authorization we know of case after case Uh, doesn't seem to bother the so called originalists who talk about original intent that aside he also the scholarship that Gaddis cites but doesn't quote uh, also points out that uh, Adams established other principles that are consistent from then until now, namely massive lying to the public, distortion, uh, uh, evoking hysterical fears, uh, uh, all kinds of deceitful efforts to mobilize the population in support of atrocities. And yes, that continues right up to the present as well. So there's a very interesting historical record. Uh, What it shows is almost the opposite of what uh, uh, Gaddis claims and uh, uh, what uh, the, Reagan, uh, the Bush administration, I think I said Reagan, the Bush administration likes. Uh, uh, and it's right out of the very sources that he refers to, the right sources, the right scholarship, except that he ignores them. Noam Chomsky. But yes, the record's interesting.
0: I wanted to uh, ask you a question. As many people know, you're perhaps one of the most cited sources or analysis in the world. And I thought this was an interesting reference uh, to these citations. Um, this was uh, earlier this month. program. Tim Russert, Meet the Press, questioning the uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace.
2: Mr. Uh, Joffrey said that one of his favorite American writers is uh, Professor Noam Chomsky,
4: someone who has written very, very, uh, strongly against the Iraq War and against m- most of the Bush administration foreign policy. Does that concern you? I hope he has more than one book on his nightstand. So it troubles you? I would be concerned if the only uh, access to foreign ideas that uh, the Minister had was was that one author. If, if in fact that's uh, one of many and he's uh, digesting uh, many different opinions, that, that's probably healthy.
0: That's General Peter Pace, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, being questioned by Tim Russert, talking about uh, Joffrey, who at this very moment um, is struggling to be, uh, again, to hold on to his position as uh, uh, Prime Minister of Iraq. Your response, Noam Chomsky?
1: Well, I frankly rather doubt that General Pace recognized my name or knew what he was referring to, but maybe he did. Uh, The Quote from Tim Russert, if I recall, was that uh, this was a book that was highly critical of the Iraq War. Well, that shouldn't surprise uh, the Prime Minister of Iraq. Uh, after all, according to U.S. polls, the latest ones I've seen reported from the Brookings Institution, 87 percent, 87 percent of Iraqis want a timetable for withdrawal. Now, that's an astonishing figure. If it really is all Iraqis, as was asserted, that means virtually everyone in Arab Iraq, uh, the areas where the troops are deployed. I frankly doubt that you could have found figures like that in uh, Vichy France uh, or uh, you know, uh, Poland under when it was a Russian satellite. Uh, what it means essentially is that virtually everyone wants a timetable for withdrawal. So would it be surprising that uh, a prime minister would uh, read a book that's critical of the war and says the same thing? Uh, It's interesting that Bush and Blair, who uh, are constantly uh, preaching about their love of democracy, announce, declare that there will be no timetable for withdrawal. Uh, Well, that in part probably reflects the contempt for democracy that both of them uh, have continually demonstrated, them and their colleagues, uh, virtually without exception. But there are deeper reasons, and we ought to think about them. There, if we're talking about exit strategies from Iraq, we should bear in mind uh, that an, for the U.S. to leave Iraq without establishing a, a subordinate client state would be a nightmare for Washington. Uh, all you have to do is think of the policies that an independent Iraq would be likely to pursue, if it was mildly democratic. It would almost surely uh, uh, strengthen its uh, already developed relations with Shiite Iran right next door uh, it's uh, any degree of Iraqi autonomy stimulates autonomy pressures in, uh, across the border in Saudi Arabia where there's a substantial Shiite population uh, has been bitterly repre- repressed by the US backed uh, tyranny uh, but is now calling for more autonomy uh, that happens to be where most of Saudi oil is so what you can imagine, I'm sure Washington planners are having nightmares about this,
2: is a potential, uh, pardon? Uh, if i 'd like to ask you in terms of this whole issue of the, the democracy in your book you talk about democracy deficit obviously the Bush administration is having all kinds of problems with their uh, even their model of democracy around the world, given the election results uh, in the Palestinian territories uh, the situation now in in Iraq where the president is trying to force out the prime minister uh, uh, of the the of the winning coalition there uh, in Venezuela even in Iran uh, the your concept of the democracy deficit and and why this administration is able to hold on uh, in the United States itself? Well, there are two
1: aspects of that. Uh, One is the democracy deficit internal to the United States. That is the enormous and growing gap between public opinion and public policy. Uh, Second is uh, their so-called democracy promotion mission elsewhere in the world. Uh, The latter is just pure fraud. Uh, The only evidence that they're interested in promoting democracy is that they say so. Uh, The evidence against it is just overwhelming, including the cases you mentioned and many others. I mean, the very fact that people are even willing to talk about this uh, shows that uh, we're kind of insisting on being North Koreans. Uh, If the dear leader has spoken, that establishes the truth. It doesn't matter what the facts are. I'll go into that in some detail in the book. The democracy deficit at home is another matter. Uh, uh, How have... I mean, they have an extremely narrow hold on political power. Uh, Their policies are strongly opposed by most of the population. How do they carry this off? Well, that's been through an intriguing mixture of uh, deceit, uh, lying, uh, fabrication, public relations. There's actually a pretty good study of it by two good political scientists, Hacker and Pearson, who just run through the tactics and how it works. And they have barely managed to hold on to political power, and are attempting to use it uh, to a stab, to uh, dismantle uh, the uh, institutional structure that has been built up over many years with enormous popular support. Uh, the limited benefit system; uh, they're trying to dismantle social security, and are actually making progress on that. Uh, to uh, uh, the Tax cuts, overwhelmingly for the rich, are creating uh, are purposely creating a future situation. First of all, a kind of a fiscal train wreck in the future, uh, but also uh, uh, a situation in which there it will be virtually impossible to carry out the kinds of social policies that the public overwhelmingly supports. Uh, And to manage to carry this off uh, has been an impressive feat of manipulation, deceit, uh, uh, lying, and so on. Time to talk about it here, but actually that book gives a pretty good account. I do discuss it in the book. Uh, That's a democratic deficit at home, and an extremely serious one. Uh, The problems of nuclear war, environmental disaster, those are issues of survival. uh, Top issues and the highest priority for anyone sensible. A third issue is that the U.S. government is enhancing those threats. And a fourth issue is that the U.S. population is opposed uh, but is excluded from the political system. That's a democratic deficit. It's one we can deal with, too.
0: Noam Chomsky, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but part two of our interview will air next week. Professor Noam Chomsky's new book, just published, is called Failed States, the Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. If you'd like to get a copy of today's DVD, you can go to our website at democracynow.org where the transcript as well as the video and audio of this broadcast will remain. And as we wrap up this week and our conversation today, um, uh, tonight we'll be in Atlanta, Georgia, at a fundraiser for Damu Smith in Atlanta at the Hillside Chapel and Truth Center, 2450 Cascade Road, celebrating the founder of Black Voices for Peace as he struggles with cancer. Next Thursday, i will be at the Center School celebrating public education here in New York, today we say goodbye to two of our longtime colleagues Anna Noguera and Orlando Richards Orlando has been with us since the TV program began a remarkable young videographer and filmmaker who as he continues to do his own work in documentaries devotes his time to teaching young people particularly high school students how to be filmmakers themselves as he teaches with our colleagues here at the firehouse at downtown downtown community television Anna Noguera has been With us also since almost the beginning of the TV broadcast. She comes to us from indiemedia.org. She helped found the New York indie media newspaper called The Independent. She was on the streets covering the Democratic and Republican conventions for Democracy Now! at the FTAA protests in Miami. As one of the police officers said to another, is she with us? Um, they answered no, and then they arrested her. Uh, it took some time to get Anna out of jail, but she was simply doing her work as an unembedded reporter. She traveled to the World Social Forum in Brazil and to Doha. I thank both of them for being with us.